Hello, and welcome to Nakla Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. Lately, I've been reading a lot about coalition building on the left. As protests against the Trump administration and the Republican Congress ramp up across the country, activists are engaged in a lively discussion about how to bring together interest groups that oppose Trump's agenda for a variety of different reasons. This conversation is an important one, and it has also led to some pondering about who exactly voted for Trump and who didn't. Predictions in the days leading up to the election saw Trump polling low among women, but while women of color turned out for Hillary, 53% of white women actually voted for Trump. And although Trump's demoralizing rhetoric throughout the campaign caused many to believe that Trump would do poorly among Latino voters, there's some debate as to whether or not that was really the case. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Nakula Report contributor Geraldo Cadava, who wrote an article for our winter issue about Hispanic conservatives in the United States and how their history as a voting bloc played out in last year's election. My name is Geraldo Cadava. I'm an associate professor of history, Latino studies, and Spanish and Portuguese at Northwestern. And... I am now writing a book, or just beginning a book, about um, the rise and perhaps decline of the um, Hispanic conservative movement between the 1960s and 1990s. So the article I published in NACLA is um, really the first work I've published from this book project. So that perhaps lends to its kind of preliminary feeling or its overview-like feeling rather than um, kind of uh, specifically focused on any particular element of the movement. The article gives us a really great kind of history or a bridge history, some context for the relationship between Hispanic um, politicians and conservative groups, which we kind of see is is a complex one. Um, And it definitely complicates the way um, that a lot of the punditry kind of address uh, Hispanics as a voting bloc in the United States and their yeah. priorities and their concerns. Um, so I wonder, you know, historically speaking, it seems like immigration has been kind of a litmus, um, even amongst conservative Latinos in the U.S. Um, sure. So I wonder, like, how that conversation has changed recently um, and just kind of what, like, what do you see as being the concerns around immigration for uh, Hispanic voters in the U.S. who are conservative. Yeah, and and perhaps there's a difference between um, rhetoric and policy as a litmus. Mm-hmm. And it, it may well be primarily um, a litmus in terms of the rhetoric. I mean, if the well, that might not be true. I think policy is important too. But in terms of the the rhetoric, I mean, I think most Hispanics, um, and I'm gonna probably keep saying Hispanics throughout this interview just because that's that's what conservative uh, conservatives have called themselves. Right. But, um, you know, I think it's a litmus in the sense that uh, it's how they gauge how a partic- particular candidate feels about the, the population in general, you know. So, for example, with, um, you know, Mitt Romney, the language of self-deportation turned off a lot of Hispanic conservatives because it felt like felt to them like they didn't have a place in America. I think when when um, politicians adopt stridently anti-immigrant uh, tones, they kind of alienate most 
Hispanics, whether they're conservative or liberal, just because it makes them feel like they don't have a place in the United States. So I think that kind of rhetoric is what gave um, Hispanic conservatives during this election cycle their greatest fits. And, you know, by and large, Hispanic conservatives, when they heard Trump talk about building border walls or deporting 11 million Mexicans, even if they themselves would not have been affected by such policies, they kind of turned away. I mean, it's after, um, you know, during a very brief period, for example, right after the um, Republican convention, a lot of Hispanic Republicans were arguing that they needed to give Trump a chance. Trump needed to go on a kind of listening tour uh, where he would kind of take in the issues that were most important to Hispanic conservatives, even kind of formed at that point only after the Republican convention, a, a kind of Hispanic advisory council. And a lot of those people defected after he gave his um, anti-immigrant speech in Phoenix, Arizona, just hours after sharing the stage with Enrique Peña Nieto. So I do think that it's uh, an important issue still for Hispanics, um, conservative and liberal alike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was, um, I remember in the in the days kind of leading up to the election, there was a lot of talk um, amongst pollsters about early voting numbers in Nevada and yeah. this uh, conclusion that the that Hispanics were turning out um, in even larger numbers than expected and that they were voting early and that this was going to be a really good thing for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I wonder, you know, in the article you talk about family values and um, Hispanic voters in the United States as uh, as a block that are generally perceived as having these kind of traditional family values that um, mesh really well with a Republican uh, platform. You know, you also say that the Democratic candidates have also kind of projected these ideas and, and use this sort of rhetoric as an appeal to Hispanic voters. And I wonder particularly about this election and the way that, you know, maybe maybe that that continues to hold up in the sense of the family and uh, identity politics coming into play um, in the more like positive sense in the Democratic campaign. And I wonder, right. yeah, on Hillary's part, you know, for Trump, it was kind of like identity politics in the sense that those people, because they are those people, are hurting us. Whereas with Hillary, it's, you know, these people, because they are these people, are with us. Um, yeah. And I kind of wonder just, what you think about that? Yeah. Did, did that really work? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I um, during during the general election and actually during the primary too, when it was Hillary uh, running against Bernie, I um, had some phone conversations and then uh, listened to a couple Skype meetings with one of Hillary Clinton's um, campaign staff, a woman, a Latina from California named. Uh, Amanda Renteria and um, in each of these conversations people were asking her about you know Hillary's message to Latinos and in particular mm. and what she was saying is that all of the, it wasn't that they had specific campaign um, policies that were targeted 
at Latinos. I don't think that's exactly true. I mean, I think they do had, they did have, you know, Latino outreach efforts and, and kind of volunteers on the ground targeting Latino communities in specific. But, you know, her general message was that all of the um, policies that Hillary supported, whether it came to um, family unification, keeping families together, or whether it uh, had to do with creating jobs for the middle class or, um, you know, strengthening public schools, all of these things, Hillary's positions on all of these issues would certainly benefit Latinos. That's how she was kind of pitching it. And I, you know, I, that could be seen through a kind of liberal and conservative lens because, you know, Hillary's um, position on education, strengthening public schools is explicitly a kind of like anti-charter school message or anti-school choice message, not necessarily charter school, but an anti-school choice message, you know? So I think, um, I think what they were trying to do was kind of just frame issues in broadly liberal versus conservative um, language and trust that those their positions would most appeal to Latinos. I mean, Trump's um, appeal to Latinos is interesting because you know, I guess this relates back to the um, immigration as a litmus question as well. Because you know, it's not that it's not that conservative Hispanics liked his rhetoric about building border walls, deporting illegals, but they will consistently talk about the United States as uh, a country with the rule of law or a country where the law rules and that immigrants should, um, you know, follow the law, obey the law and uh-huh. get in line like everyone else. So there is a kind of conservative, Hispanic conservative twist on um, or maybe not twist, but a, a Hispanic conservative angle on immigration debates that is about the the rule of law and such. And I think, you know, that's part of it. It's all, it was always kind of mystifying, you know, when you would see a group of Latinos supporting Donald Trump. But I think that's where the support comes, comes from. It comes from things like the, this is a country with the rule of law. A nation without walls isn't a nation. That's something Trump said a lot. Um, you are when you're when you talk about the rule of law. There's something about that to me, and I think you you do point to this in the article as well. Um, that kind of gestures toward uh, the countries in Latin America that people or people's parents or grandparents are from. Yeah. Um, and this sense that whether, you, however true this is or untrue, that the rule of law is not being upheld in these countries that, you know, that I I think the recent um, death of Fidel Castro has kind of uh, opened up, you know, a new discussion on the on the ambivalence of Cubano Americans towards this guy and towards everything that he represents in this kind of um, very polarized and charged uh, emotionally and and politically charged discussion around, you know, who was he? What did he contribute? What did he detract? but that, you know, that you would leave a country in Latin America because you don't like the way that things are going there. Yeah. And that you would then come to the United States and a particular rhetoric would appeal to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, that's, that's totally right. I mean, I think that's, 
um, you know, one of the, the the main pillars I think of my project is trying to figure out how um, conservatism gets translated between Latin America and the United States and people who identified with Latin American immigrants, migrants, refugees, settlers in the United States who identified with the right in Latin America became Republicans um, in the United States. I mean, they adopted the values of the the Republican Party. I mean, that's something I'm very interested in. And many, in many cases, it definitely has to do with uh, rejection of, um, you know, leftist politics in particular countries in Central America or the Caribbean uh, run amok. And I think that, yeah, corruption has a lot to do with that. Lawlessness has a lot to do with that. Um, and, you know, they, they, Hispanic conservatives rhetorically have um, wanted to see the same the same kind of rule of law or the same kind of almost even authoritarianism could you would call it I guess um, replicated in the United States and they would want strong leaders they wouldn't want I mean this this came this came to play a lot in the 1980 election, um, for example, between Reagan and Carter, where Hispanic conservatives across the country in Miami and California and New York um, wrote to candidate Reagan and, and, you know, emphasized the need to um, kind of stop, put an end to Carter's um, spineless foreign policies towards Latin America, where uh, even even kind of blaming Carter directly for the spread of communism in um, in the Americas. And uh, Reagan was seen as their, their kind of savior. You know, he was going to be the person to kind of do away with communist influence, with corruption, with lawlessness both in the United States and in the Americas for his support um, or through his support for strong kind of interventionist policies in Latin America. Yeah, so I mean, it, what I see most coming from this article is that there's there's just a, there's a smoothing over of heterogeneity in this voting bloc. I mean, it's not, it's not a block and it's treated no. as such. Um, yeah. And also, you know, that, that, uh, Hispanic constituents in the United States would be some of the uh, primary uh, promoters of the involvement of the U.S. government in South American coups and dictatorships um, as an anti-communist effort. Um, mm. And you, I mean, you mentioned Chile and and yeah. Cuba, of course, um, which is not. I mean, that's something that perhaps is underappreciated. Um, just the 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 vigorous nature of this conservatism and and the idea that um, larger geopolitics is a huge part of of why people are conservative in this particular right. block. I'm thinking right. also of the, the Venezuelans in the United States. Um, this, I mean, I, I also was thinking about um, white Latinos, which is a category that I think many people, white people in the United States are not aware even exists. Uh, and how race 
and the and the way that racism has has ceased to be inferential in Republican rhetoric. Um, how that plays into decisions that they're making, you know, there's on the one hand, there's you agree with this man's policies, you think that he is going to restore or further strengthen the rule of law here, you agree with his international policies, you agree that immigrants shouldn't be allowed to come into the country illegally, et cetera, et cetera. And his supporters, um, on the other hand, are aggressively are, are attacking people that look like you. Um and are and are tuned into a different part of the rhetoric here and are responding to a different part of the rhetoric that you kind of set aside maybe or or just isn't doesn't seem as important um and yet is resulting in a lot of of physical violence mhm mhm yeah totally um you said a you said a lot right there that kind of touches on <laughs> bigness and complexity of the project, some of the challenges to the project, um, I mean, both uh, conceptually and in terms of carrying it out, you know, the, the first thing I'll talk about, I guess, is the idea that um, Latinos aren't really a voting block. Um, on the one hand, that truth um, is one of the biggest reasons I've been interested in writing this project because, or writing this book because, you know, in, uh, even the idea, for example, that like Reagan saying Latinos are, or Hispanics are natural conservatives who just don't know it yet. The idea that there, there's something natural, uh, or embedded in their identities that is conservative is something that I, and I'm sure, um, any other historian would want to kind of instinctively argue against. But even coming from um, from within Latino communities, you know, like there, there are a handful of people who write about Latino conservatism or Latino Republicans, mainly in the kind of PR world or, um, Washington think tank world who want to reduce Latino voters to numbers, you know, that by saying things like, you know, like some of the ideas that you mentioned early on, like, Latinos are hyper-religious or they have traditional family values. All of, all of these are ways of describing the community that reduce them to some sort of essence. Um, and that's one of the things that I, of course, want to write against. Um, and even the idea that Cuban Americans are somehow the only representatives of Latino conservatives when right. in fact Mexican Americans in Los Angeles I, I think were some of the kind of earliest founders or galvanizers of a Hispanic conservative movement. These are all kind of holes I want to poke in what little is known about Latino conservatism. But then on the other hand, um you know, I am trying to write about it as a national conservative movement that for a period of time united Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, who even if they might have had, you know, different priorities like fighting Fidel Castro or arguing about the territorial status of Puerto Rico or um, border politics and immigration, even if they had different hobby horses or primary interests, um, still came together under the, the rubric of 
Hispanic conservatism to try to, um, you know, galvanize their community support or as some of the founders of the RNHA, the Republican National Hispanic Assembly put it to kind of create a home for Hispanics within the Republican Party. So, you know, I feel like I'm constantly walking this line between wanting to poke holes and, and in, in the logic that the kind of essentializing logic about Latino conservatives and say that they're not one community in Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Dominicans and Venezuelans, Chileans, et cetera, all have different interests and therefore, you know, might not even naturally fit under the category of um, Latino or under the broad umbrella of Latino, but at the same time, try to show the ways in which they they have been brought together, both by the Republican Party and their own leaders who want to see, um, you know, issues that resonate among the groups like Ben Fernandez, for example, um, the first uh, presidential candidate who was Hispanic and, and he was a Republican ran in the primaries against Reagan in 1980. He really thought that, um, Hispanics across the country were going to be his base. You know, millions and tens of millions of, uh, Latinos would turn out in mass support for this Mexican, um, American candidate from outside of Los Angeles. And that didn't turn out to be the case. So, all of these are issues that I'm trying to wrestle with. And then something you were saying about how, you know, these are people who are trying to find their place within conservatism, where they're, they're trying to hold on to the ideas that resonate with them from a particular candidate. At the same time, they recognize, you know, anti-immigrant stances or, or violence or um, economic discrimination, things like that. Um, that's that's also an important part of the project in the sense that I wouldn't, you know, I'm trying to resist the urge to say that the, the conservative movement is one thing also. You know, I mean, conservatives throughout this election cycle were wrestling with their relationship to um, their party's candidate. And, you know, were they going to vote for Donald Trump, someone they considered to be abhorrent, or were they going to stay home, sit it out and um, thereby let Hillary Clinton become president of the United States, a, a woman who uh, came from a family that they detested, those kinds of debates. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that the conservative movement itself is uh, one thing. And I suppose that this is just the challenge of all historical projects, right? Like this complicated research endeavor where we're trying to simultaneously pay attention to difference and distinction and make qualifications and demonstrate nuance, et cetera, at the same time that we're, we have to tell a narrative story, right? That takes us from A to Z and we have to draw broad uh, conclusions and um, generalizations about the people we're talking about that, of course, um, in some cases does, uh, you know, violence to their, um, to their historical subtleties and trajectories. So I guess, you know, this project is turning out to present all of the same kinds of challenges that any uh, project would, including your own dissertation, I'm sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, finally, I did want to ask about the um, the kind of hot debate around the exit polls uh, oh, in this election. Um, you know, on the one hand, there are these separate voter analyses that say 
Latino and Hispanic voters rejected uh, Donald Trump in record numbers. And then on the other hand, um, there are these exit polls that suggest that Donald Trump actually did, you know, anywhere between six to nine points better among Hispanic voters than Mitt Romney did um, in 2012. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm curious, first of all, what the stakes of this debate are, you know, why is it, why is it so important? Um, and there are some answers that come to mind, but I'm curious to, to hear what you think. And, and then, um, you know, you talk in your article a little bit about how this is, how the, the answer to this question, like, did, did Trump win more Hispanic voters, um, than Mitt Romney? Did he do much better, uh, particularly among rural Hispanic voters than, than Mitt Romney did? Mm-hmm. Um, what does the answer to, to that question mean going forward for us? Yeah, yeah, boy, that's that's uh, it's interesting. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, as you know, I've been kind of criticized by the Latino decisions people who are um, Hillary Clinton's or were Hillary Clinton's kind of Latino vote pollsters, and. So the first thing I want to say about it is that I did not write that article trying to really intervene in debates about exit polls versus precinct polls and how much we can tell from exit polls um, and how much we can tell from precinct polls. And I'm totally, totally sympathetic with the larger argument that um, Latino decisions would make about exit polls, how they tend to undercount Latino voters, how they, um, you know, don't have Spanish language, um, pollsters, those kinds of things. I totally, totally sympathize with that. I guess I just noted, I guess the thing I was primarily trying to observe is that it wasn't so much about exit polls versus precinct polls. It was about whether there was this Latino surge that you referred to earlier in the conversation in places like um, Clark County, Nevada, where Las Vegas is the, the county seat, or Maricopa County, where Phoenix is the county seat, or Bihar County in Texas, where San Antonio is the county seat. So it struck me that all of this talk about a Latino surge, um, all of the focus was on you know, big cities, which made sense to me because that's where you're going to see a lot of the voting rights activists, a lot of the immigration rights activists like Puente, Arizona, or something like that, really making an effort, or even the campaigns themselves really making an effort to get out the vote um, among Latino voters. So it just struck me that when you looked at rural counties, that some of which only had one precinct. So in that case, like county level analysis and precinct level analysis should be the exact same because it's not like, you know, the Latino decisions people will argue that, you know, the county is too big. In order to understand what's going on in Latino communities, you have to dig beneath the county level to see what's going on in precincts because in heavily Latino precincts, you're going to see the same kind of break for Hillary that you see for Obama, if not a bigger break for for Hillary than for Obama. And I'm also sympathetic, totally sympathetic with that argument. Um, In counties where there are many precincts, but 
it still leaves the problem of what to do with, um, you know, counties that only have one precinct, these rural counties that only have a thousand or a couple thousand voters. So you asked about like the stakes of this debate. And, you know, I think there are different kinds of stakes. I think for Latino decisions and, and, you know, serious pollsters of Latino communities, the stakes are huge. I mean, it's their, their credibility on the line, right? And they have to be right because they were employed by the Hillary Clinton campaign. They, they need to have credibility going forward. They were making a very serious point about how traditional polls undercount uh, Latinos. So that's one version of stakes. I mean, for them, there's a lot, there are big consequences to, to being right or being wrong. Um, huge benefits to being right, consequences for being wrong in terms of their, their trust, their, the trust that they have, um, or the, the reliability that their polls have. But I also think it's a question, I think for me, the stakes are, okay, um, it might be true that there was this surge among Latinos in urban areas, but what does it mean that in single precinct counties in New Mexico, a greater number and a greater percentage of Latinos voted for uh, Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney, and at the same time, a lower percentage and a smaller number of Latinos voted for Hillary Clinton. What does that mean? Like what I'm I'm interested in the kind of qualitative shift and as someone writing a book about Latino conservatism, my next question is like, okay, well why? It's not about the numbers. I, I'm less concerned with the the numbers here than trying to figure out why a um, Mexican American in rural New Mexico would like Donald Trump. What about Donald Trump appealed to this rural Mexican American in um, in New Mexico? So I actually think that there is room for both sides of this debate to be right in the sense that you know the the larger point that Latino decisions is trying to make about um, the the unreliability of exit polls, etc. I can get behind that for sure, but I also want to know. I want them to kind of. Um, I would want them to kind of provide shades of nuance to that argument as well by looking at complications to that argument um, in New Mexico or in rural Nevada or in rural Colorado and. Um, so I think the larger stakes in that sense for me, and I would hope for them as well, would just be that you want to get a kind of truer, nuanced, and qualitative sense of what Latino voters think, even if they're in rural areas or urban areas. And then the final thing, the final kind of stake for me that I'll say is that I don't know what the politics are of insisting that the way this election turned out, it ended up being what Ruben Navarrete called a brutish tug of war between Latinos in the Southwest and 
rural, um, white Midwestern voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. I don't know where that gets us. I mean, empirically, because clearly some rural Mexicans in the Southwest also voted for Trump. So I'm not sure how stark the divide was between Latinos in the Southwest and whites in the Midwest. But, you know, part of me after this election wants to think about how to bridge divides instead of exacerbating them. And I think that's part of the stakes for me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the sort of thing that that makes me more interested to see the um, the there's like polls that ask uh, exit polls that ask what the most important issue is for voters mm -hmm. after leaving and that and that and this kind of conversation makes me more curious to see, okay, well, you yeah. know, if foreign policy is really important to Hispanic voters, that being their most the most important issue for them could sway them in either direction. Um, and, and yeah, I'm less interested in seeing Latinos or Hispanic voters represented um, in exit polls as like a, as a homogenous, as a monolithic block. Right. Exactly. Um, it's, the number really tells you very little. Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, that's what I'm taking away from that. That, that breakdown, that racial breakdown, the class breakdown um, in general in the polls, I don't think is serving very well for understanding how any election goes. Right. Um, I think it oversimplifies maybe the, the math that people are doing going into going into the polling booth. Um, cool. Well, I know that you have to run. So thank you so much, Jerry. Sure. Yeah, take care. Thank you. You too. That was Geraldo Cadava, and this has been NACLA Radio. If you haven't checked out our website, nakla.org, you should. There's plenty of archived NACLA Radio episodes, as well as original content updated every week and links to subscribe to the NACLA Report and, of course, to donate. The NACLA staff is small but mighty, and your help means a lot to us. You can also like NACLA at facebook.com slash NACLA and follow us on Twitter at NACLA. That's N-A-C-L-A. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our web editor is the incomparable Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocha. Los plumajes nuevos, coco, canto del monte, coco, los plumajes nuevos, coco.